Ambassador Alberto Fernandez, who was Yusuf Al-Qaradawi? Yusuf Al-Qaradawi was a religious, religious figure, a political religious figure. He was an Egyptian-born cleric who uh, was an Islamist associated with the organization, the political revolutionary organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, who in the 1960s, the early 1960s, had the good fortune of being thrown out or fled from Egypt and going to this very little, at the very time, backward place called Qatar, which proceeded to become, you know, fabulously wealthy. And as Qatar rose, he rose with it. So that's who Qaradawi was. He was an Egyptian turned Qatari, became a Qatari citizen, who rose to influence, you could say, on the uh, on the back of Qatar's rise to influence in the region. Yusuf al-Qaradawi died last month, and nobody really spoke about this in the Western media. Why was this an important story that nobody covered? Well, I would say it was covered to some extent in the Western media that there were kind of hagiographical, uh, you know, uh, obituaries about them about him. They were very kind of pro forma, very superficial. Uh, they made kind of certain obvious points. Uh, I don't think they really went deep enough into the man. Why it was not a bigger issue in the West, I think part of the problem, that's probably for another conversation, the West has a problem in, in, in uh, understanding and covering figures that are not Western. All right, well, we'll, ta we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, for those viewers who are not very familiar, what is the Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood is uh, an originally Egyptian political revolutionary movement formed in the 1920s by Hassan al-Banna, whose idea is, you know, as a as a proponent of political Islam is to take power and to have Islam, as they define it, be the dominant force in government and society. So it's a political movement began in Egypt and has iterations in other places. And there's like, a, you could say, a Turkish variant of the Muslim Brotherhood in the AKP, a Palestinian variant in Hamas, etc. But the idea of the Muslim Brotherhood was that Islam, Islamic law, Islamic rule should be dominant in society, and in fact dominant everywhere, not just in the Muslim world, but dominant everywhere, and that it, power should be taken as, as it could be taken. So that means that if power for the Muslim Brotherhood, the power for Islamists could arrive through the ballot box or gradually, politically, that's fine. If it required more than that, if it required direct action, or what we would call terrorism or violence, that was not necessarily to be discounted as well. And there's a connection between the Muslim Brotherhood and jihadist groups that we can talk about. But the idea is of the Muslim Brotherhood is basically political Islam should be dominant. They should rule. Islam should be supreme as defined in kind of a conservative view of Islam should be supreme and it should remain there. That's that's basically the idea. And, let, and let's contextualize it for viewers. Uh, you know, before anything else, the Muslim Brotherhood and its ambitions are focused on the Islamic world, on the Arab world, uh, and, and Turkey later on. And uh, the focus here is a revolutionary movement against pro-Western governments or uh, governments that were established by the West, such as the governments of uh, Egypt, of uh, Saudi Arabia, of uh, Iraq and Syria, early post-colonial uh, period after World War II. And well, pro-Western and also leftists as well. In other words, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood was against the monarchy in Egypt, which was pro-Western. And then they were against Nasser, who was against the West as well. They were 
against both of them, as they would be against Assad in Syria. So they're against pro-Western regimes and uh, secular or leftist or Ba'athist regimes as well. Okay, and and let's talk about Kaldawi. Going back to him, he uh, he moves to Qatar, and um, you know most people probably know Qatar for uh, either the uniform of the Barcelona football team or a small television network that became a very important one later on, Al Jazeera. Let's talk about Al Jazeera and Karadawi. Well, and other, I mean, I remember uh, serving in the Gulf in the late 80s in Kuwait, uh, late 80s, and the uh, everyone used to make Qatari jokes. Qatar was regarded as Hicksville, as a backward, boring place, as a place that was, it was not advanced, it was not wealthy, it was not developed like, like Kuwait, like uh, the UAE, like Bahrain. But that changed, you know, its oil wealth was later in coming. Uh, natural gas wealth was later in coming. So Qatar is a small country with a lot of money and what it did. And Al Jazeera and we are part of the story is that it used its money to leverage soft power to gain tremendous influence regionally and to actually extrapolate that worldwide. Uh, obviously, in media with Al Jazeera, with this you know pan Arab network, which tried to be edgy and tried to be different and and got a tremendous amount of influence in 1996, beginning in 1996, and with promoting a kind of a religious ideology very much connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. So the patrons, you could say, of the Muslim Brotherhood, of, of Hamas, of Erdogan in uh, in Turkey, etc. Using that soft power, you know, that money to do other things like sports, right? Like the World Cup, which we're about to see. So that's that's what they did. And, and Al Jazeera, you could say the media component, Karadawi, the religious component are were part of integral parts of that kind of cutery grand strategy to project soft power. Qatar is a very small country with a small population, a small military, so it's not going to project that much hard power. But you know, millions of dollars spent in, uh, in you know. In, in Gaza or spent in uh, Libya or in uh, Sudan, coupled with the power of propaganda, coupled with the power of religious propaganda as well, in the shape of Karadawi and others, that's a powerful combination. Media, ideology, money. That gives you a lot more weight than this kind of tiny country with just you know, a few hundred thousand people. So Yusuf al-Qadawi has the loudest microphone in the Middle East and, and in many parts of the world. His uh, weekly sermons are heard in every part of Europe, every part of uh, you know, sub-Saharan and Africa and all around the Middle East. And I would argue that at its height of the Muslim Brotherhood was the Arab Spring where Al Jazeera, everybody always talks about the Facebook revolution, but really it was an Al Jazeera revolution where Al Jazeera was trying to bring down Hosni Mubarak and, you know, as we said before, all the not all the um, non-Muslim Brotherhood Arab regimes all across the Middle East. And we saw that right after the revolution, the Arab Spring, we saw the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. And we see a lot of people from the West, and I remember vividly op-ed pages of the New York Times explaining that the Muslim Brotherhood are moderates. So let's talk about that. Well, I'd say two things. First of all, you could say Karadawi, they're like the four stages of Karadawi, you alluded to them. There's a declared that existed in relative obscurity in, in Qatar until he goes on Al Jazeera in 1990. 
1996. In 1996, he becomes this regional media star much more than before. He was influential before. He's a prolific writer. He wrote the book on uh, on almsgiving, on, on zakat in Islam. But he becomes a media star in 96. And then when you talk about moderation or moderate, he becomes even more prominent after 2001. Why? Because there's Al-Qaeda, you know? And then he becomes even more salient or more significant from 2011 with the Arab Spring and the rise of kind of Islamist politics in these revolutionary uh, states in Egypt, in uh, in Tunisia, in uh, in Syria, and elsewhere. So he does all these things. So there are the different stages of him. Of course, it's easy to say you're a moderate if you're comparing yourself to Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. But, you know, I'm uh, originally Cuban-American. I'm Cuban-American, originally from Cuba. You know, you have uh, communists and you have different flavors of communists. They're all communists. You know, and so, you know, the difference between say, Cuba, North Korea and China and Russia, old Russia, right? They're different, but they're not that different. So there is a difference, obviously, between the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But it's a matter of degree. And in fact, in many ways, they overlap. Qaradawi was an open, unabashed anti-Semite. And, you know, this is not an opinion. This is not a question of maybe yes, maybe no, or he didn't like Israel. He's an anti-Semite who justified what Hitler did to the Jews and said that he hoped that the Muslims would do the same thing to the Jews if they got out of line. So he was no moderate. Yes, if you compare it to people that are cutting heads off in the public square, you can spin it that he's a moderate, but he really wasn't a moderate. He endorsed suicide bombing, both against Israelis and against Americans in Iraq. At the same time, by the way, the Qatar hosted the largest U.S. military base in the Middle East. So, you know, he was a, a, an extremist, but he was a different type of extremist than the Salafi jihadists. Because the Islamism of the Muslim Brotherhood is not exactly the Islamism of the Salafis. Although some of the biggest figures of what became came Salafi jihadism, came out of the Muslim Brotherhood. They came out of Egypt, you know, or Palestine. Abdullah Azam, the Palestinian who was, we call today the father of global jihad, was a Muslim brother on the West Bank and in Jordan. He eventually hooks up with Osama bin Laden, founds the organization which becomes So, So these are not so even though you can point to, and Qaradawi is a perfect example, you can point to criticism by Muslim brothers of Al-Qaeda and of ISIS, they also share certain characteristics. And there's this overlap that exists. Sayyid Qutub, Abdullah Azam, Ayman al-Zawahiri, all of them come from the Muslim Brotherhood and go into, you know, uh, kind of uh, as becoming emblematic figures of jihadism. So Qaradawi was sometimes against and sometimes along the same line as the jihadist narrative. Okay, very good. I, I want to go back to the period between the end of the uh, so-called Arab Spring and the probably the, uh, the following decade, where we see yeah. the rise right. of two different axes within the Sunni Arab world. You know, for a lot of people in the West, there are Shiites and Sunnis, and they're all the same. And this is such a gross mistake. Can you speak about the alliance between uh, Turkey and Qatar on one hand, and Saudi Arabia and Egypt on the other hand? In Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood is pretty much illegal. Yeah. And at the same time, Turkey and Qatar are in the full business of exporting the Islamic Jihad to places, as you said, like Northern Africa, and even to Europe. Let's talk about that. 
Yeah. Well, certainly there there was a time when, for example, Karadawi and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was more accepted by by all of these regimes. I mean, uh, uh, as as I, when I mentioned that the Muslim Brotherhood was against leftist regimes like Nasser and Assad, Muslim brothers flee to the Gulf in the 1960s, 50s and 60s. They go to Saudi Arabia, they go to Kuwait, they go to the UAE, they go to Qatar. They're welcomed everywhere. Because they're not communists, they're not leftists. The change begins to happen when uh, governments in the Gulf realize that they have brought in these vipers into their nest who seek to overthrow them. And that's when you see kind of the Saudis reacting against uh, we're not going to support these people anymore. This is a mistake. This is a big mistake. The Emiratis having this reaction, them drawing closer to Egypt. Obviously, this is especially true with the Arab Spring. And that's when that kind of clear division that you're talking about, the two camps of the Sunni Islam uh, emerged. Qatar, of course, the supporter of Islamism, and of Islamist regimes, the supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's completely natural that Qatar, which doesn't have an army, not really, doesn't have a large population, would draw near to an Islamist government in Turkey, which has an army, has a large population, has the things that Qatar lacks, and can serve as a patron of Islamism worldwide. The same way Qatar draws close to Hamas, of course, that connection, that Muslim Brotherhood connection, and also knowing that the flag of Palestine is a powerful one in Muslim and Islamist discourse, and they want to they want to be connected to that. Meanwhile, you could say you have the status quo, so you have this kind of revolutionary axis, even though Qatar is a hereditary monarchy, it's it's very much part of this revolutionary axis. And then you have your kind of the uh status quo power axis, which becomes, you know, this kind of drawing close of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Bahrain, you know, later leads to things like the Abraham Accords and all of this that comes out of it. You basically have a the revolutionary access within Sunni Islam and the status quo or moderate access within uh, Sunni Islam, fighting it out. Okay, well, let's let's go to Europe now. Uh, Kardawi was an influential person, not only um, in the Middle East, but he became a spiritual father for a lot of immigrants who came to Europe at a time where the Europeans were pushing integration and multiculturalism, basically telling, uh, you know, the refugees who moved to Belgium and Holland and France, you are now Europeans, you must accept our values. Now we had a different message. Yes, I mean, uh, to be honest, of course, initially the message was not just him. It was a lot of the regimes, you know, were, were pushing this kind of different ideology. So you had very naive Western governments that uh, allowed uh, Salafi regimes or Islamist regimes to provide all their clerics, you know? So instead of having kind of Europeanized, you could say Westernized clerics, you had... Uh, Western governments farming this out to extremists in the region, which is crazy. Aradawi, of course, is influential, but he especially becomes influential when he goes on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera Arabic is watched where? Among immigrant communities in Europe. But he doesn't stop there. He kind of creates, with the help of Qatari money, a religious empire, the presence on Al Jazeera. 
right? The top broadcaster. He is involved in the creation of the top at the time in 1997 when it's created the top Islamic website in the world, which is islamonline.net. He's involved in that. And his presence was heavily featured in it. It's a Muslim Brotherhood cutout, but he doesn't stop there. He creates two more organizations. He creates the European Council on Fatwa and Research based in Dublin, which is to provide religious advice to whom? To these migrant communities in Europe. Why? To try to steer them towards an Islamist Muslim Brotherhood worldview, as opposed to, you could say, the assimilationist liberal kind of worldview, which is what the Europeans wanted. And on top of that, he still founds another organization, the IUMS, the International Union of Muslim Scholars, which is a kind of an umbrella organization, again, with Islamist covering, with Muslim Brotherhood covering, to kind of influence clerics worldwide. So you can see the kind of the genius of it. You create a propaganda influence empire that includes media, religion, money, and you spread it not just in the Middle East, but globally, not just in Arabic, but in English and in Western languages as well. And, and the Qatari money is heavily found in Western universities. I think some of the largest universities, some of the most prestigious universities all around the world, you can, if you follow the money, you will see a lot of Qatari money and endowed shares who are uh, sympathetic to Qatar's worldview. Yeah, and you find you find uh, kind of all these things coming together. For example, uh, Karadawi was one of the uh, one of the uh, board of the uh, what was called the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies at Oxford University, founded with Gulf money. So yeah, it always comes together. These kind of connections of money used to influence ideology and propagation of ideology and using media and ideology and cash. All right. Well, this is a wonderful case study in soft power and uh, international public opinion where the audiences are domestic and uh, abroad. Alberto, you are the vice president or were the, are you still, I'm not sure, of memory. Can you speak about the organization and what it does? Well, memory was founded 25 years ago as a kind of a, had a vision that is so true. It's true then, it's true today. And that is that there are two worlds. There's a world of what is being said in the original languages. And then there is what we see in the West. And now he's a perfect example of this, you know, kind of what is produced for foreign English language consumption and what is produced in the native languages. So the idea of memory was to document, translate, and analyze content that especially involved the areas that we've been talking about. What do people believe? What do they say about themselves and about the other? What do influential figures in the world of religion, in the world of politics, what do they say about how they want the world to be and how they see the West? What is their view, for example, of uh, religious pluralism or or of uh, minorities, of Christians, of Jews, all of this? So memory began, you know, as I said, 25 years ago, first working in Arabic and, you know, added Farsi and Turkish and Urdu. And in recent years, we've expanded into... um, into Russian and Chinese. Memory also looks at the phenomenon of anti-Semitism and uh, neo-Nazis in the West, not just in the West, also in the East, meaning the European East, because there's a lot of this in Eastern Europe as well. So we continue to do research, do uh, 
to analyze and to provide a constant stream of translated material, uh, you know, primary sources about all these issues. So no more secrets in the world and a wonderful resource for people who want to know what people are really saying behind closed doors. All right. Well, thank you very much. I think this was a good first conversation about the Muslim Brotherhood and about Yusuf al-Qardawi, who was a prominent figure. It's going to be very interesting to see who's going to step into his very large shoes. You wrote a very, very insightful uh, article about uh, Al-Qardawi, and it's for anybody who wants to read it, it's in the comment section of this video. Ambassador Alberto Fernandez, thank you so very much for coming in today. We appreciate your insights. Thank you, guys.